Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Sharing emotions associated with difficult events in life has a natural basis. We're a social species and we're primed to connect, to survive. Our well-being is based on emotion co-regulation and uh, psyches are shaped, right hemispheres are wired by how well emotions are attuned to, mirrored and soothed by caregivers. Isolation in our species leads almost invariably to dysregulation. If you put well-adjusted adults into solitary confinement, within 72 hours begin to show the uh, presenting symptoms of psychosis. Certainly our species under threat generally experiences impulses that have been labeled as tend and befriend. I think that's the saying, tend and befriend which urge us to seek support and care from others. And these affiliations have clear advantages. Groups uh, that are far more capable of warding off predators than lone individuals. And as uh, Lieberman and uh, Naomi Eisenberg um, noted in their studies that uh, the brain is wired to promote pro-social bonds, especially during times of stress. So we all have within us these natural impulses that when we've experienced something painful, a difficult event, to um, connect with others disclose and keep on disclosing and narrating the experience until uh, it feels like the emotional activations are eventually reduced. Throughout history, there have been many authorities and arguments uh, that have supported talking about negative experiences with others. It's not a recent historical development, to be sure. Ethan Cross points out Aristotle urged his followers to purge emotions after tragic events by going to others and talking about the experiences until they experienced catharsis, a release of the underlying painful emotions. Freud, uh, the entire foundation of talk therapy was based on the idea that the repressed content of the id or unconscious could be uh, in some way mitigated when it was interfering with our conscious life by reclaiming the traumas and emotional wounds of the past and disclosing them in the therapeutic encounter. And spiritual and 12-step traditions urge confession and uh, a uh, disclosure of painful emotions and repetitive thoughts.
So we all uh, feel this, or most of us at least, have this impulse to disclose painful, obsessive, unwanted thoughts and experiences to find others um, and uh, disclose because we want people to help us uh, reframe the experiences in ways that will be less painful and will uh, we want people to help us uh, distract ourselves away from the pain or to at least to have someone hear it in such an empathetic way that we will feel connected in our sorrow or disappointment. Yet, despite all of this influence to share and disclose our emotional wounds and our traumas and our disappointments with others, um, of course, there are times when people will find their ability to share and talk about emotional pain um, restricted, where it will be very difficult, where this natural or this, this culturally uh, supported urge to connect with others will be um, uh, stymied. And Bernard Ramey lists a whole bunch. Um, he says, one, when experiences elicit feelings of shame and guilt, they counteract the impulse to uh, disclose. And so we refrain from exposing ourselves. And that makes sense. If we experience an event that is associated maybe with abandonment or or doing something that we feel guilty about or a situation where we feel uh, in some way reflects ourself, then uh, what will happen is we will feel once again that shame, that sense of there's something wrong or defective about me, and that will inhibit our ability to share. Another reason why people fail to disclose or talk about painful experiences is that uh, our environments might be unreceptive or we might not even be able to find people, especially during a pandemic when social distancing has been uh, demanded of us, that it will be difficult to connect with others and that are empathetic and safe and find uh, people that will uh, be able to tolerate and, uh, and attune to our emotional pain. And then of course, many people will talk about uh, traumatic events, and yet they'll refrain from disclosing the most painful or sensitive parts, and that will wind up creating narrative holes in our stories about what has happened to us. Over time, painful events uh, turn into ruminations about oneself, why did this happen to me? Why is this always happening to me? What's wrong with me? Why am I always the one that's struggling to find a relationship or a good job or the person that has the issues with uh, work or the issues with family systems or, you know, uh, we'll find a way to turn it into a story about our identity. And it also, uh, 
undisclosed painful events will turn into defensive dogmatic ideas about life. Some people will become fatalistic. Some people will become very jaded and believe that others aren't to be, uh, that you're in it all by yourself or whatever. So hopefully the urge to disclose helps us frame experiences in ways that don't turn into either beliefs about ourselves or uh, extremely negative fatalistic views about life in the world, etc. Um, so in, in talking about experiences, we hope others will change how we think about the experiences, reduce the, rumin the rumination, and feel, I think, validated and understood. However, and here's where the interesting clinical studies came in, everything I said up to now I think is pretty obvious and I think is pretty run-of-the-mill and standard, but here's where there's an ironic twist in the tale, which is that in clinical studies, uh, repeatedly sharing and talking about our painful experiences actually produces unexpected results. And they found that people who shared their thoughts and feelings actually didn't get, after initial uh, talking about the event, people over time got less and less resolution and actually fared worse than people who stopped talking about painful experiences. Now, I think this is pretty interesting. Um, they did a study with people after 9-11 who, and they broke, they, uh, broke them down into those who shared their thoughts and feelings um, and focused on the internal experience that witnessing 9-11 uh, uh, produced. And those that didn't share excessively or much at all about, I shouldn't say excessively, but much at all about the experience. And they found that the people who shared about it quite a lot started feeling worse and worse. They didn't feel any better. In fact, they fared worse in, than the people who didn't open up about how they felt. So it seems that after initially disclosing a painful event, simply sharing about it didn't help. It actually hurt. Um, furthermore, there's a lot of uh, studies about how people who repeatedly disclose fears over time become reassurance junkies. That's the, uh, the sort of term that some psychologists use. And actually they become more and more dependent and more and more focused on the fears rather than less. In studies by Kennedy and Moore, Lepore, Reagan and Jones, Mendolia and Clack, and so many others, they found that talking to others about negative experiences doesn't help us recover in any meaningful way. After traumatic events, some people suppress the memories to blunt the pain, while others actively try to make sense of the experience. And it seems that uh, the difference between the two is actually in times not as great 
in terms of recovery or healing as one might expect. In fact, the degree to which one narrates painful events fails to influence or reduce, they found, depression or anxiety or even the emotionally charged memories themselves. So that's kind of uh, extraordinary. Uh, I'm going to actually read you a quote from the study by Bern, uh, the Belgian psychologist Bernard Remy. Uh, this is from the conclusion. The study was called uh, Emotion Elic Elicits the Sharing of Emotion or something like that. But if you look up Remy and Emotion, R-A-M-E, R-A-M-E. Anyway, he concludes, no consistent empirical support was found for the common view that putting an emotional experience into words can resolve it. Emotional feelings increase, again increase, not decrease, but increase as a result of reviving and re-narrating the emotional experience. Consequently, mental rumination, intrusive thoughts, and the need for sharing are enhanced the more one shares. So, in other words, sharing about and focusing about a painful experience, what it does is it doesn't reduce the anxiety, the depression, it doesn't reduce the intensity of the emotional experience, it simply gives birth to a need to talk about it more and more and more. Nils and Ramey found that after showing people very stressful scenes in movies, that people afterwards were paired with either a person that was very challenging, a validating, emotionally validating and welcoming person who encouraged them to talk about it, a control partner who wouldn't talk at all, and a partner who finally uh, helped them reframe the way they interpreted the movie. Now, the challenging partner didn't help, the validating partner didn't help, and the person who didn't talk didn't help. The only person who helped reduce the stress was the person who sat and actively helped the person reframe, reframe and reinterpret the movie in a different way. So validating partners were no more helpful than people who were challenging and difficult. So that's a really to me i i don't know if this is at all surprising to any of you but to me this really runs counter to so much of the training i've had uh working in counseling and being a buddhist pastor and also to um i think the very foundations of some of the um uh therapeutic encounter now I should say that th none of this is actually quite new. Uh, the founders of positive psychology, people like Martin Seligman and uh, Jonathan Haidt and Sandra Leibomorsky and Barbara Fredrickson and others have noted that traditional therapies tend to overemphasize repeatedly narrating and disclosing and talking about painful events and obsessive thoughts and that these strategies actually can leave people stuck in re 
living those events. And in positive psychology, they talked about essentially pivoting to focus on what are the experiences in life where we're succeeding, experiencing happiness, experiencing resilience. So rather than rehash the emotionally wounding events and the experiences associated with traumas and abandonments, they talked about essentially focusing on the positive, hence positive psychology. Susan Hoeksma, who uh, passed recently a famous psychology, uh, noted that individuals who are prone to repeatedly narrating painful events experience more social friction and less emotional support. Essentially, she found that they wound up pushing people away. And why is this? Well, it turns out, I think you all will know this, but it turns out that relationships demand reciprocity. That uh, if we become focused or fixated on the painful events in our life, uh, over time people will feel that they're left out, that they're not receiving emotional attention from us. And as Ethan Cross notes, uh, that's why therapists charge us, whereas friends don't, because in the therapeutic encounter, it's kind of expected that we'll dominate the conversation. But with friends, when conversations become lopsided, social connections begin to deteriorate. So um, it, another study showed that people who continually rehash painful emotional experiences over time become more hostile and more dysregulated. It was a really funny study to read that people who uh, were encouraged to talk about the painful events in their life, they would exact more punishing behaviors in these studies to other people than people who were encouraged to not <laughs> talk about the painful experiences in their life and were talk, encouraged to talk about positive events. <clears throat> As many psychologists note that um, over time, um, rehashing the narratives revives the unpleasantness. The right brain's associative links, the right brain, which is uh, primarily governs negative emotions and withdrawal emotions, um, tends to be associative and it links all the experiences together that elicited the same emotion. So as we talk about an experience associated with a feeling of being mistreated, when we talk about it, it will bring up unconsciously all the other experiences of mistreatment, and then will trigger the feelings associated with mistreatment. Or if we feel uh, disappointed by external events, other disappointing memories will be triggered. So as we recount our troubles and details, related negative thoughts and experiences spring to mind and trigger even more painful emotions. So uh, it's obviously the time to talk about, well, what's the alternative? What do we do when we have painful experiences? Well, 
One, it should be noted that somatic experiencing and uh, therapists uh, associated with somatic work, like Peter Levine and um, Pat Ogden, uh, note that instead of disclosing painful narratives, Levine noted that that's not essential at all, that resolution can happen by focusing on releasing the trapped, incompleted movements and survival energies that got somehow cut off during painful experiences. And that resolution can be done from a somatic experience by bypassing recounting the entire trauma as a story and instead focusing on what are the physiological states in the body that were evoked by the experience. And that would be a talk in and of itself. But I just wanted to mention that that's one rich stream out there. Uh, in the studies by Rumey, the most effective exchanges were those where both the individual in distress and the listener at first acknowledged the feelings that were occurring in the person summarized the beliefs or the interpretation, but then actively focused on putting the events into a different perspective. I want to say that again. The most effective encounters were where somebody said, oh, so what happened? And the person would very basically say, you know, I experienced this really horrific event at work, or I felt insulted, or I just went through a breakup, I'm feeling miserable. But then quickly, they pivoted to how could they reframe the experience in a way that felt less personal, less about oneself, and also more ephemeral as something that would pass, or something that in the past a person had successfully dealt with. Now, this is where our good friend the Buddha comes in, because he's been notably absent from my talk until now, but he now pushes his way into the conversation, and he says, but that's what I've been saying all along for 2,500 years. And it's very true. If we look at not only the first noble truth, where the Buddha talks about how the most important understanding from a spiritual perspective is to really grasp on a deep level that in all life, everyone will experience old age, sickness, death, loss, not getting what we want, disappointment. And to have that so constantly in the forefront and also implicitly lodged in our mind that when disappointing events happen, we can immediately put them in perspective. And the Buddha said with Kalyanamita, seeking out wise spiritual friends, the whole point of connecting with these wise spiritual friends was not necessarily simply for empathy, but actually to have us remind us that shit happens. That's the clinical term. That it's not about us, that we've been through other shitty experiences and survived. Now, let me give you a specific example. The famous Buddhist tale of Kisogatami, 
Uh, I've told this uh, tale before, but it's worth just repeating very quickly. Kisagatami was a very doting, loving single mother of a young child. She was very poor, and she placed a lot of her expectations for the future on this child. She really, because her life was so uh, deprived of um, of the normal accoutrements associated with comfort, and uh, she lived a very impoverished life, that she really hoped that her child would have a much better life. And tragically, around the time the child was, I think, around four or five, uh, the infant was bitten by, uh, or the young child was bitten by a snake and died. And so she carried around his body with her and went from one spiritual teacher to another, essentially trying to relieve her pain. And she was very much in denial. And she thought these famous uh, uh, Brahmins and Jains would be able to somehow either bring the child back alive or end the just end the emotional pain by talking with them. And she wasn't in any way found any solace or relief. Finally, out of um, kindness, one spiritual teacher says, I don't know how to help you, but why don't you talk to the, the Buddha, Siddhartha, and see what he has to offer her. So she went to Siddhartha and she said, can you please either bring my child back to life or uh, end my pain. And she retold the story of her life and her child's death. And the Buddha said to her, listen, and then he said, look, I can give you a solution. I can help you. And the way I can help you is if you can find me a family uh uh, that can give you three grains of mustard seeds. And she said, of course, I can find, because in ancient India, the Indus Valley region, there was only one thing that was plentiful, and that was mustard seeds. And the Buddha said, but there's one catch. You have to get these mustard seeds from a household that hasn't experienced loss and or death. So she left her child's body with the Buddha and she went down to the villages and she knocked on a door and she said, the Buddha said that he will either bring my child back to life or end my pain from my child's loss if I can get three mustard seeds from you. And they said, of course you can. We'll give you as many mustard seeds as you want. And then she said, but there's a catch. I can only get those mustard seeds from a household that hasn't experienced death. And they said, well, I'm sorry, but our grandmother just died. And then she went to the next house, the same story. And the household said, oh, I'm sorry, I can't because we just lost our son too. Or we just lost our sister-in-law. We just lost our uncle or we just lost. And over time, this experience reframed the loss she began to see that her loss was not about herself, was not about actually 
something that was a, a message to her in any way that loss, death, aging, pain are unfortunately part of the human deal, the human experience in and of itself. And this was a, a form of reframing or re-changing the way she perceived the loss in a way that changed the uh, emotional activation. And it was said that after that, she finally grieved fully and then was willing to bury her child and then was able to move on in her life. So uh, I found that I, I must say that in my own counseling work, that the mix that my attempts of simply only being empathetic in interpersonal encounters generally doesn't lead to resolution that and of course we're all taught not only anyone who goes into the field of counseling but especially a pastor is taught to lead always with empathy and 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 to create a lot of space where people can safely share of their emotional pain but i personally have found that actually individuals who simply want that very rarely experience relief and it's actually the times where we can get into it and start reframing what the event was from a different perspective and relook at it uh, from a different angle that we begin to see a progressive um, uh, movement towards resolution. Uh, certainly, I've found also that in working, for example, with individuals with attachment wounds, that the people who continually fiercely just want to narrate the painful obsessive thoughts or painful events are the ones who are the most dysregulated and the least likely to experience any positive um, uh, uh, growth in counseling or in work. So finally, um, uh, I'd like to note that um, there are many ways that we can reframe painful experiences in ways that will diminish the need to continuously rehash or repeat the narratives looking for some way to uh you know that in the hopes that telling it will somehow alleviate the traumatic or painful emotions um one technique uh, I like, and it's actually based on the work of Gestalt therapy, is when there's been a painful event, to replay the experience as if it's on a movie theater in the mind, and to constantly look around the movie theater and to see oneself not the experience not from behind our eyes like we're reliving it but to see the experience as if we're you know watch the experience 
from a distance, like we're in the movie theater watching the events that happen. Oh, there I am on the screen. And there's the other person who uh, uh, acted in some way that's disappointing. And this technique allows us to get distance from the event and over time diminishes the need to re-narrate the experience. Uh, some people note that in when we reflect on a painful experience that we're worrying about, it's useful to review and in some way reflect on other painful experiences from our life that we've in some ways come to a state of ease or peace with to remind ourselves that we've previously endured painful events. Ethan Cross uses a technique where he has people mentally time travel into the future and say, okay, a year from now, what do you think you'll be worrying about? Or what do you think will be the story or events that will be on your mind? And if we practice this enough, we'll remember that the thing I was worrying about six months ago, or obsessed about six months ago, I can't even remember. Or if I can remember it, it's certainly no longer on my mind. And if I could go back two years in my life and remember whatever it was I was uh, focusing, worried about, or uh, disappointed with, that's totally past. And so this time travel technique, as Cross calls it, allows us to experience the fact that all painful events in and of themselves are transient, even the most traumatic, while the emotional mind can bring up the painful traumatic events from life and cause pain, that in general, if we can remember how they were no we at times they're no longer present in our in our day-to-day -day experience we'll begin to see how each subsequent event will not be always forefront of mind um another technique is to remind ourselves that the bodily responses to stress are actually adaptive they're not a mistake. So sometimes when we have painful events and we experience this intensity in our body, it can be very scary, but actually evolution has primed us to have these reactions to, to actually improve our performance under stress. So anyway, um, I think I'm gonna end with that. I have some more notes, but I feel like I've talked enough. I hope that something in there was actually worth pondering. And um, as usual, if it wasn't that interesting, I'll try to do better next week. So uh, in any way, in any event, let's sit down now and meditate. And we're going to use a couple of these techniques I've talked about in the meditation. And we'll also just use the meditation to... Uh, uh, come to a complete stop and release some of the built up uh, momentum of the day. So thank you for listening. And as always, if you feel any inclination to support my work, uh, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X and YC. So 
putting aside uh, our need to uh, look at the uh, computer or the iPhone or whatever we're looking at and closing the eyes. And for me, taking a sip of water so uh, my throat doesn't dry out. And um, just starting with one of those really full, refreshing, well, a few of those really full, refreshing breaths where we just bring in the air to the point we feel the lungs filling up and then the long, slow, exhalation, the release where we feel the energy discharge and just letting it all out. And another breath. And uh, a third. And just seeing if we can take a quick scan of the areas in the body that carry a lot of momentum, energy, what's the term literally is action potential, where certain muscle groups over the course of the day and life are just used to constantly being uh, mobilized, our hands, for some people, the tapping of the foot or the uh, movement of the tongue in the mouth or the eyes bouncing back and forth behind the eyelids and just find where all the momentum is still playing out from the day, from the busyness of life. Just find where that energy is just really built up. And just one by one, releasing, using the mind to soften, encouraging these areas to settle. So we could start with the eyes and just encourage the eyes to find a really comfortable position using the eye sockets like two warm pools of water, just encouraging the eyes to no longer shift about behind closed eyelids. If the mouth is twitching or the tongue is moving, just encouraging it to 
release into a comfortable, uh, settled position. If the uh, shoulders have that tightened, slightly activated, lifted up state associated with sitting in front of a computer or working at a desk, just encourage the shoulders to release away from the ears and if you'd like to roll the shoulders back to open up the chest and if the hands are fidgety just f allow the hands to rest on the legs and the palms to be uh, faced up and just allow the Focus on just the soft, easeful feelings in the palm of the hands and just use that ease, spread that ease into the fingers so that they can relax. So spread any warm, soothing energy in the hands to the fingers. And then continuing this through the body, if there's, if the toes feel like they're needlessly squinched and tight, just allow them, encourage them to release and to let go of that uh, habitually driven movements that are uh, associated with action potential and just so the body just begins over time all the little areas that um, are associated with mobilization getting things done dealing with issues just to release all the the action in the body to come to a complete standstill and just first and foremost uh, prioritize ease and comfort Meditation is a balance between ease and alertness. Ease to allow us to be present without it being stressful, to reduce the amount of stress, suffering, anxious energy, and awareness meaning that we don't drift off into foggy, uh, lost dissociative states that we're still aware but we're in a state of great uh, settledness 
And so let's just sit here quietly for a little while and just enjoy this moment where we can land in our life and really connect with the body and all the sensations that we generally under-prioritize. Disconnect from all the things we need to get done, put them all aside, all of the unresolved issues, just allow them, give ourselves a little break from it all.
So at this point, I'd invite you to bring to mind a recent uh, disappointing experience. And first, not something hopefully too traumatic, something that was frustrating, perhaps a conversation or an interaction or just a turn of events in the plot of life that was unexpected. And just for the first, for the practice, just in your mind without going into too much detail, just simply recite the most basic, if you can, story, narrative, put it into a sequence that could be related. First this happened, then that, and then finally, this was the outcome and I felt worried, frustrated, etc. Essentially ruminate to a limited degree on the event as we normally might after a, a frustrating experience. So probably as you were re-narrating the event, you probably experienced it, the images, if there were any images, as if you were part of the experience. Again, you saw the other people or the uh, situations as if you were back in it. Now let's try a different technique. Let's replay the experience, but this time as if you're looking at yourself outside of your body. You see yourself in the situation, but you're just a fly on the wall or another person that's not involved. So looking at yourself from outside, replaying some of it, but not from behind your eyes, as if you're a third person just looking at yourself and what's happening.
And now let's try it this time. Imagine there's a movie screen in front of you and you're in a movie theater. <laughs> it's been a long time since any of us have probably been there. Um, or maybe it's on a large TV and you're at home in a living room. So you're watching, again, the events, but you're seeing, just like in the last exercise, you're seeing yourself and the other people who were present or whatever the situation was, you're seeing it now on the TV in this room. And now, bringing to mind a painful event from the past, maybe something that we were worrying about or frustrated with a couple of years ago or many years ago. What was a big issue in the past that seemed insurmountable that's now forgotten or no longer by any means front of mind. Just bring to mind some challenge, drama from pe previous phases of our life that seemed insurmountable and yet now are no longer in any way daunting. And reminding ourselves that we strong resilience or just through the nature of life that those issues passed. And now travel forward in time into a year from now when there'll be a whole new host of issues and things on your mind. Whatever the disappointing event that we brought to mind previously will now be a very hazy, forgotten experience. So at this point, I'm going to ring the bowl. So take your time, as long as you want. There's no rush to open up one's eyes and become externally aware. 
but uh, just use this as a cue to very, at your own pace, uh, reintegrate the world around you with our internal experience. 